my name is Kendra Winchester, and I'm here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we are reclaiming half the bookshelf by talking about books by or about women. And we are here today with Ethel Rowan, the author of The Weight of Him, which is out now from St. Martin's Press. And we are very excited to have you on the podcast today. Welcome, Ethel. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. We are so glad to have you, and as we talked a little bit before we started recording, um, Kendra and I were both pleasantly surprised by this novel, thrilled to read it. We don't know why more people are not talking about it, because we just loved the characters, we loved the plot, we loved the message, we just loved everything about it. So thank you for reaching out to us, and thank you for um, sharing it with us. Oh, I'm so grateful to both of you. Um, And and as I mentioned, I, I listened to your discussion, and uh, just wonderful, you know. It was interesting because I didn't. I was able to sort of remove myself and not feel like the author listening about my book. It was more, I don't know. It was very enriching and very rewarding for me to listen to it. So thank you, and, and to get that sort of in-depth response to a book and the characters, and uh, it was really fascinating. Yeah, we really enjoyed doing that, and that was actually one of the longest discussion episodes we've ever recorded because we did. The weight of him, and we did the Essex Serpent, and we just kept talking. It was over an hour, <laughs> and I had to cut it down to, like, closer to half an hour. And so, yeah, there's just so much in The Weight of Him, and every the more I think about it, the more I realize is in it. And that is an amazing sign of a great book. Thank you. Um, so I guess we will just jump into the questions then. Congratulations on your on the novel and that it came out now both in the U.S. and the U.K., um, you've primarily published short stories in the past, so uh, for our listeners who haven't read The Weight of Him yet, can you tell us a little bit about the book, and was there anything about writing the novel that surprised you? Yeah, um, the book is set in Ireland. It's uh, set in a contemporary um, village in rural Ireland, and it tells the story of the Brennan family, and in particular the father, Billy Brennan. The book begins five weeks after the family have lost their teenage son, Michael, uh, who was 17. They lost him to suicide. And in the wake of that, um, yeah, they're struggling with how to go on. And Billy does something extraordinary. He is 400 pounds, and he decides in the wake of Michael's death that he's going to go on a public weight loss campaign and try to lose half his body weight. And he's asking the public to support that weight loss, and whatever monies they donate, he will... um, in turn, give to suicide prevention. So this very much becomes his mission, and and, uh, that's how the book begins. Uh, The catalyst is he sets out to shed half his body, but ultimately it's it's to try to stop suicide, which is uh, an epidemic in Ireland, particularly uh, for young men, but it's also a global epidemic. And in fact, the statistics are frightening. The numbers are increasing, not decreasing. So yeah, it's a pretty timely topic. Did this start out as a short story, or did you have it it planned from the beginning? No, it did. It started out as a short story. What was surprising for me with tackling the novel was I actually found it easier. There were lots of things I struggled with the novel itself, but it was more with the story and the characters, the process itself of, you know, showing up every day and and kind of having that stamina and that focus to stick with the novel I found not easy and, and very rewarding. Actually, I loved getting to spend that much time with these characters 
and in this world and really going in depth in a way that I hadn't with my short stories. I love the short story form, both as a reader and a writer, but I find it incredibly challenging um, in how to go about it. Like, there's a mystery for me. I think some of my favorite short stories are the ones that I... I leave, and, and like you said about the weight of him, you know, that they stay with me and kind of pop up in different ways, and it's more with a sense of questioning, you know, like, why did that story affect me, or, you know, wh- what was that about, or what was I supposed to take from that? Like, there's just a, I don't know, the short story always seems just a little out of my grasp, both as a reader and a writer, um, and I love that. <laughs> But as the writer, it's very, very challenging. And it was just something that felt much more organic, innate about the novel. I just felt more at home there, um, for lack of a better term. Well, I'm a huge short story fan. And I feel like that some of my favorite novels are actually written by people who were short story writers first. And I think it's something, I don't know, like maybe something about like how you have to restrain yourself in a short story and then like how that compactness kind of manifests itself in the novel. Yeah, um, it's true. You know, I think the same skill set goes into both forms, and I absolutely feel I've learned the most from, you know, trying to tackle the short story. And, And as you say, just that sense of compactness and figuring out, like, you know, what does story do, whether it be uh, you know, a short short, a short story or a novel, what what does story do? And it's looking at the character and, and the arc of their story. And so absolutely, the short story is so uh, instructive. So then the title of your novel, The Weight of Him, I love because I feel like it just perfectly encapsulates the different layers of meaning that the book has. Was this an original title that you had or did it come about like near the end of the writing process? Kind of like, how did you come up with the title, I guess? It actually came out um, quite close to publication date, actually. Um, Originally, when it started out as a short story, um, the title was Seconds. And again, I I think I chose that because I felt it had some of that nuance and layering that the ultimate title does. You know, it was hinting at the idea of of Billy's food addiction and seconds in, in the food sense, but it was very much about, you know, the pivotal seconds in our life, you know, that can change us forever. And indeed, for Michael... Uh, those last seconds of his life where he chose to end his life. I felt that worked for a long time, and that was the title for a long time. And then at some point, I think obviously after it shifted from the short story form, after I realized the story was just too big for that form, it for quite some time again was called The Kingdom Keeper because I became fascinated with that thread throughout the novel of Billy creating this alternate world, this miniature village that he he creates and, and it's miniature inhabitants that really represent for him, you know, the ideal space and the ideal world where his family could, Michael could return and his family could be reunited. So I kind of became really fixed and fascinated by that. And in fact, there are many more scenes and tens of thousands of words that ultimately did not end up in the novel. So for a long time, the title was The Kingdom Keeper. And then I sold it at that title, but all along my editor was like, "Mm, I just don't feel it's there yet. So we went through, oh my gosh, tens and tens and tens of titles. And as I often do, I was in the shower one morning and it was just came to me. And I, why I knew it was the title was I could hear a voice say it. Like I could hear 
a voice that was also nuanced and said it in many different ways. And there was the, you know, the weight of him talking about Billy and judgment. And it was Billy himself, like the weight of him. And that was Michael. And I don't know, it, it felt the most right of all the titles that I had tried out. And, and that's what we ended up with. Yeah, and it is, it really is so perfect. I think we could, we sat there and we kind of not picked it apart isn't quite the right term but we sat there and just tried to uncover all the different layers of it and the more you talk about it the more it comes from it and it is really perfect right. the shower is magical right thank you <laughs> uh, so one of the things that autumn and i both really liked about the book was that while it covers many serious topics you manage to say so hopeful and i personally really like just am fascinated by how Billy is an optimist and right now being you know a pessimist is kind of trendy and hipster but Billy right. yeah right well and, and unfortunately there's also um it is a very oppressive time I think we almost can't help but be uh you know we're I, I don't like to generalize but I think this is a fair generalization to say that I think this is a time where people really are struggling and it's you know we're sort of grasping at hope and grasping at optimism because there is a lot to be disturbed by and pessimistic about but you know billy though he's so wonderful that he is even though like his plans don't come to what he want them to be because he hoped for so much he was able to achieve something for what he wanted he was able to raise awareness um, maybe not as much but he he achieved his goal and so one of the things we want to ask was as you're writing the book about a very difficult topic about both weight loss and about teen suicide what strategies did you use to keep the topic from becoming too heavy for the reader was I conscious of that throughout? I think when I write, and I think my best writing comes from that place of sticking with the story. I think the catalyst was that question of, you know, what if, what if a father who has lost a son to suicide and who is 400 pounds, what if he set out on this goal? Um, and I kind of kept coming back to that and writing those many scenes and, in fact, several times interviewing the various ca- uh, characters and getting to know them. And as you point out, realizing that Billy is incredibly hopeful despite this great tragedy and despite having really shut down uh, so much of himself over the years. And so it was always coming back to, you know, who is Billy? How would he respond? Looking at the other characters, the same of them, and what felt, you know, honest and true. Those kind of tests, if you will, character tests. And, you know, I always put my characters through a credibility test as well. You know, would they really? Everything, thinking, doing, talking, all of it. So, yeah, I I agree. I think he is ultimately an optimist. And I think as more and more of the story, you know, he's he's shedding his body, but what's coming out is character that he internalized as being unworthy, his true self, if you will. He shut that down from a very young age. And really, is this sort of, you know, I kept throughout with, with the story in particular, I always think of a sculpt, you know, a sculpture coming out of the block. And, and that was really true of Billy. That's kind of like his his transformation, it's much less about the body and it's about his true self coming to the fore. And he, he is an optimist, but it was, it was shut down uh, early in his childhood. So in contrast to Billy, one of the characters that I found the most fascinating was the documentary filmmaker who Billy is introduced to through mutual friends, I believe. He So Billy decides, you know, that he wants to create a documentary and he gets 
with this filmmaker to create a documentary about the lives of children who have committed suicide and kind of celebrate their lives. And the filmmaker, unlike Billy, is a very harsh and has a more like invasive kind of approach to dealing with grief in that like he wants to go visit this family like the day after their second child commits suicide. What about the story or made you feel like it was important to include this contrasting sort of character and like kind of what perspective does it give to Billy and what he's going through? I think I, in many ways, that character is, is a manifestation of my own anxiety. Uh, I think I mentioned at the outset, I had such fear around this book and in the writing of this book, I felt this enormous responsibility. As you mentioned, I, you know, writing about two very large and difficult topics, suicide and obesity, food addiction specifically. And I, I just knew there was, I felt there was so much to get wrong and I felt I needed to get it right. So they were major stumbling blocks for me throughout the course of writing the book. And I think the character the filmmaker is really in some ways, it's almost like a cautionary tale, but I'm only realizing this in hindsight. It's that idea of, you know, what is art and what is the role and responsibility of artists? And, you know, one of my personal drives in storytelling is to try to get people to look at the difficult things and not look away. And I suppose for me, the filmmaker is a character who just takes that too far and is, you know, sort of so fixated on the story and the effect he wants it to have on the recipient that he is in a little way mindless, like he's not being empathetic. And it's that idea of does he then, because he's so willing to go there and have a disregard for his viewer, that he would actually traumatize or abuse the viewer's and so I think there was a little part of me that was, I need to be really careful here. Um, and I try as a writer when I'm writing to not think about the reader. You know, it's always about how to tell the best story I can, uh, the most, most truthful story. But I do feel at some point, particularly when you come to publication, you need to think about the reader and how the work will be received. And, and it's, again, it was sort of like a check-in with myself and my own moral compass you know, what did I feel the effect would be? And was it something that I could justify, not only justify, but feel good about? Um, and the book ultimately for me passed all those internal tests I had. So I, I am fascinated by that. And I suppose, yeah, again, it's for me sometimes as a recipient, like I, I struggle, I don't like violence. I, you know, I really feel its effect when I read visually. I see it when I watch, you know, film and, and, and shows. I think I think about that, you know. So I think he's a manifestation of that. At the time, um, it was just telling the best story I could. And again, who, who my imagination brought to life through the course of telling the story. Yeah, and I really appreciated, you know, how you handled that. And I read... The Weight FM around the time I, I saw a certain uh, TV show on Netflix. And I was right. fairly appalled with how they had handled it because I have close family and friends. And I told them all, don't watch it. Like, it's going to be triggering for you. But I felt that I would feel comfortable giving your book to someone who does struggle with depression um, and suicidal thoughts. That they, since you don't portray the actual suicide and the way you handle it is just so well done that, you know, I felt so comfortable with it. And I felt that the. Um, documentary guy was sort of like that side of sensationalism, you know. Right. Yeah, and I, and I suppose it's about what are our motivations, you know, what's driving 
the need to tell a story or uh, to, you know, to create art, that type of thing. It, it's interesting that you bring up that show because I was at a reading just the other night. Um, Lee Daniel Kravitz, the author of Strange Contagion, it's just a fascinating I was going to say idea, but it's, it's actual science that things are catching um, ideas, emotions, all of it. Um, and that show was brought up during the Q&A, and Lee Daniel Kravitz made a great point, and it's that the danger with that show and with representations like it is that it's actually not about suicide, it's about revenge, you know. So I thought that was really fascinating and that that can be triggering and catching and there's just this huge responsibility and I suppose again it's that struggle with you know where does our responsibility begin and end so I think you always just have to I know for myself it's just that checking in with myself and the moral compass and you know do I feel good about this can I stand by this do I know why I'm doing it those kinds of things it does bring a lot to mind and gives you a lot to think about as you you know it's important to talk about it but you have to be so careful and I also appreciated how you handled the family's grief and how different people grieve in different ways that takes us to our next question which is about the family situation and so Billy um he's married as his wife and there are I believe three other children in the family after his son commits suicide and so we see a lot of Billy's grief and how that drives him to do the walkathon and lose the weight and to raise awareness but his family just wants kind of to be alone and so the entire family does not the most part does not support his efforts but we see how that they're just grieving in a different way so there's something about grief that pushes apart or pulls together families and so as you were writing the family um can you just talk about your approach to that and what you know was there anything that you wanted to communicate to the reader or was it just something that came out of the characters yeah i i would say it came out of the characters um i don't outline when i when i write i very much you know there's the catalyst there's something that triggers the story and uh for the weight of them it was a, you know a snippet of conversation that i overheard two men talking about uh, a woman who was grieving um, she was also obese, and, and the comment was, you know, her grief might just kill her before her weight does. And that stayed with me and, and wouldn't let go, um, and that's how I came to tell this story. So I'm kind of going, you know, step by step. I have my questions. I have my characters. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm putting them through the various exercises of, you know, oh, oh, this happened. Oh, uh, you know, how would they respond, that type of thing. And it just felt very honest and true as I got to know each of the characters that they absolutely would respond differently. And grief is such a unique and such a personal process. So I think I just innately knew that to be true. And then indeed, you know, as I put the characters in various scenes and have them interact, uh, Trisha in particular, their responses were very different. And, and that felt very true to life for me. Um, so much in the family dynamic is, you know, the pecking order and and uh, so much is, is about the different uh, relationship with one parent and another, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was just that sense of, of course, they're going to respond differently and you put all that grief and tension and it's, you know, it's, it's something, it's like simmering, boiling and does it boil over and whether grief pulls apart or, or brings a family closer together. I actually, for a long time in the writing of the book, didn't feel this family would survive this tragedy. They were very, and I think that's it, you know, why do some families survive and others don't? 
and I think it's what you're susceptible to. Um, I think if there's already cracks, which there were with the Brennan family, um, those cracks can widen. I think that's for the most part true. But this, the opposite can be true, too. Uh, it's just depending on the circumstance, the dynamics. But, yes, ultimately why, I think it's what we're susceptible to. And if there was already a very shaky foundation for the family and the various relationships, a tragedy tends to just deepen the wound, if you will. I think that's one of the great things about books like this is because I think like you, I knew inherently that people process things different ways. I'm from a large family and just, you know, seeing how my own siblings and parents respond to things. But I don't think I ever stopped to think about it until reading this story, because at first I thought, you know, I kind of thought maybe you know, Billy was callous or like his wife was callous, you know, at different parts in the, in the story. Right. But it's true. Like this, like we all process things differently. And that's why I, I love novels like this. Cause it makes you confront those things and like actually think about it and think about what's going on. Right. And I, and I love that you just use that word confront because I, I think that's what's happening here over and over and over again. And, you know, I think the, the, characters and again I think that's true of life were given opportunities over and over and over again to confront things or look away and in this case there's there's so much tension and so much suffering you know whether the character looks or chooses to look away has, has very large consequences so you know it's interesting I think in your comments or maybe in the previous podcast you talked about, you know, Billy's limited perspective. And and it is. It's it's a close third point of view, so it's it's almost like the eye, but in third person. And so we only you know, he's Billy's the camera through which we see these other characters. And I for one love unlikable characters and, and I wondered and, and worried I suppose how Trisha might come across to the reader, but again, it was putting her through these various situations, many of which did not end up uh, finally on the page and just getting to know her and what was true of her and in ways she's the one who has maybe the largest growth uh, throughout the course of the novel because you know what happens with Billy as I said earlier is were things that were already inside him that he allows to come forward um, Trisha didn't have that kind of empathy, that ability to confront within her, that's something that happened throughout the course of, of grieving and also by really Billy gets her t- to confront things that she really, really, really did not want to. So she, for me, was very interesting to put her through the various in- interviews. And again, the three children have very different responses. Yeah, as I say, it's for me, it, it, it all comes from the characters. And I think you do it beautifully. And that's why I want to kind of return to something we talked about a little bit before we started recording. And this is one of the questions we had sent you, but and it's something we've talked about in the last episode, too, is that weight loss and teen suicide, you know, not exactly things that you would put together, like at first thought, but it, the, the two themes do work so well together. And so you kind of briefly mentioned how it took you a long time to write this book because of that. We would love to hear more about like your process and what made you decide to write this particular story and like why it took you as long as it did to do it. Well, as I mentioned, the, the catalyst was that snippet of conversation that I overheard and I knew I was onto something. Like it just the way it touched me and stayed with me and this idea of, you know, her weight, excuse me, her grief might just kill her before her weight did 
Um, and at the time that I overheard that, I myself was just starting to come out of a very uh, dark place where I uh, was struggling with uh, tremendous anxiety and depression and had had suicidal thoughts. And the catalyst for a story, the idea came to me at that time in my life. And I suppose we all sort of harvest and mine those moments and, and our experiences. When I started to write and that question of, well, what if, you know, what if this character? Well, it was like, well, who is this character? Who do they lose? What's the grief about? And and it was interesting and in some ways shocking to me because I love to champion women and why, you know, I overheard a, a remark about a woman and immediately when I sat down to write, it was a man. That's probably another question and answer right there. But it was Billy, um, really, from the get-go. So it was like, okay, who did Billy lose? Oh, he lost his son. Okay, he lost his son to suicide. And so I, I think it was timing, you know. It was me insert this very personal struggle that I was going through and putting it into the work, that sort of marriage of my real-life experience with imagination and this fictional character and, and world. And so when I had all that angst come up about, oh, God, this is a terrible idea, and as you say, there just seems such a terrible marriage of ideas, uh, but I just kept going back to, but that's what it was from the beginning and something about it felt right. And then once I got into the story, then it was like, yes, yes, yes. I just... Something, instinct, the universe, I don't know, something told me to keep going, you know, that I was on to something. I'm so glad and grateful this book is in the world. I, I've had some wonderful responses, you know, some emails from complete strangers about how it's touched them and affected them and that for me. And of course, I, you know, I'm trying to build a career and of course I have a healthy ego and all the rest of it. So I would love to see the book, you know, do better and reach more readers. But ultimately for me, honestly, those kind of responses to the book are priceless and they're what keep me going. And, and you know, it's funny because I'm working on another novel now and I'm loving it and there's a part of me that has can stand back occasionally and say, you know, I think this book will do very, very well. But it's interesting, there's kind of, I don't have nearly the same fear and so there isn't the same energy to it. It's really interesting and I almost miss like how much energy and awareness and kind of sharpness that went into the weight of him. It's it's interesting, and I wonder, will I ever feel that specific charge again when I go forward with other work? Yeah, there was, there's something about the fear that I miss, which I never thought I would say. <laughs> I mean, of course, I have the normal fear that every writer does, and, you know... Is, is this a worthwhile story? And, you know, do I have the skill to pull off another novel? And all of that sort of, I would say, very typical angst. But there's not that. This book is touching a really deep, raw part of me, and I'm terrified about how it's going to be received. I'm, I'm not feeling that, and I hated that feeling when I was writing the book, and now here I am with my next novel. I'm like, I kind of miss being terrified, <laughs> <laughs> if that makes any sense. But, oh, yeah, I guess it's like your kids. Everyone's different. Yes. Yeah, very much so. It's so unlikely. I think people are always fascinated with, you know, with any work of fiction, it's like how much of the author is in there. And I think I was in there in the beginning in that where the theme of suicide came in. But I, I very quickly and thankfully so became about the characters. And I think I come in maybe a little bit more at the end with one of the characters that Billy meets at the end of the story. She, for me, gets to speak on, again, like grief, how unique uh, depression and anxiety are and, and how there really is no 
one way to experience it and no one way to recover from it. And I, you know, that was one of my own struggles that it's, I was highly functioning, but I was also feeling internally debilitated and I couldn't find myself anywhere when I looked at the textbooks and looked for answers. And it's like, hmm, no, that's not quite my experience, but I know I'm in trouble. And I just got into a darker and darker and darker place. Yeah, I had a lot to say. And then my mother also was obese. And so I, I had that kind of intimacy with that subject matter from that point of view too. Yeah, every time the angst would bubble up, I'd say, no, I I can tell this story. I'm supposed to tell this story. I think you did such a great job of, you know, portraying an obese individual. And um, I think we said this on our podcast, but um, when Autumn told me that she was reading the book, I, you know, I went on Goodreads and I said, oh, Roxane Gay, you know, really likes it. I know, I know. And actually, that I'm like three books down on my to-read pile of her memoir, Hunger, which I cannot wait to start. Yeah, when I saw that, that was just so rewarding. And, and so, yeah, it's those moments that I mentioned earlier, you know, whether it's Complete Strangers or whether it's Roxanne Gay, Five Stars on Goodreads, you know, like I told her, I'm going to print this out and frame it, you know. I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, those are the moments, you know, those are the highs. That was great. I'll take those moments any day (laughs) they're well deserved so we could probably talk about the weight of him for a very long time but we (laughs) we are limited on time but before you go we did want to ask you um you know here at the reading women we're all about reading women and about female voices so we wanted to ask you who are the women who have inspired you in your writing Ooh, it's so funny when i'm asked that out and about i always blank. I don't know what that's about. It's like the Achilles heel question. But I can tell you, and I hear so many other writers, and it always makes me feel a little insecure, and they talk about how they grew up, and there were so many books in the home. And well, we did not have books in our home. We were a working class Irish family. And uh, so the first books that I had access to were my brother's school books, like the classics that they were assigned to read. And the one book, so I you know, read a lot of Charles Dickens, and, but the one book that I was life-changing was Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. I was thinking about that. I got asked that question a lot, you know, what, what's sort of the book? And, and I think the book is typically from our formative years, and I was a young teen, and I read that book, and it was the first time that I remember not only being fascinated by the character and the stories, but by the author. I was like, wow, you know, Emily Bronte, this young girl, motherless. I'm always fascinated by the motherless trope because while my mother lived until recent years, um, you know, I feel like I lost her really young in life to mental illness. And so that, that trope of the motherless child. And um, there was just so much about that story that was so rich and vivid in imagination. And yet knowing the life that Emily Bronte lived, I thought, like, how did she come up with such a story? And it just really fascinated me, the idea of like what we can do and how books are such vehicles of the imagination, both for the writer and the reader. So yeah, that was the that was the one the first female author that kind of shook my world, if you will, um, because not only did I love it as a reader, but I felt like I could do this too. Like wow, writing could take me places because I wanted very much to get away from where I was. And then I remember when I you know got pocket money or started like a part time job, I would go up to the local secondhand bookstore and I remember Agatha Christie was huge I I think I read every book I could get my hand on I loved mysteries and crime um and more recently I have to say yeah (laughs) 
recently I kind of ended up going back where I finished because then um, as a teen I remember reading Edna O'Brien and, and absolutely loving her work. I was sort of like, wow, you can do that and you're a woman author. And I mean, her books were banned. It was just... It was a, a revolution, if you will. Anne Enright was another Irish author that I loved. And since then, I, I really try to read everything and anything I can. I try to be as inclusive. But recently, I've gone right back to the Irish writers, women writers, because there is some exciting work and some great, great contemporary Irish women writers at the moment. I'm reading a book by June Caldwell called Room Little Darker. It's a collection of short stories. Just explosive in that they're daring and they are so... Relevant. They're holding up a mirror to contemporary society. They're kind of breaking all the rules and talking about things that really matter to women, you know, particularly working class, gritty, the kind of underbelly of, of Irish culture and society. Um, and there's lots more books like that. So that's kind of where I am in the moment, and that's where I'm getting a lot of inspiration. And in the novel I'm working on now, the central character, it's historical fiction, but it is a female protagonist. You know, I'm reading these women by women writers, and they're, they've got so much guts and grittiness. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a vein I definitely want to follow. So, yeah, I've kind of gone full circle. Uh, and as I mentioned, Roxane Gay, another book I really uh, want to get to is Min Jin Lee's Pachinko. Oh, yes. Um, oh, she's so good. Yeah, I've, I've heard fantastic <laughs> things about it. Our, our book club, is that's on our book club's uh, list. Um, and, yeah, Guy Asti's homegoing. Uh, she's a, a local Berkeley author. It's good. Um, I haven't gotten to that one yet. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so good. So, so good. Really powerful, powerful read. Yeah, and, and I that was one of the things about, you know, earlier when you mentioned Billy and optimism, I, I think I stunned people during my recent Irish tour at a book festival when I said I thought it was a great time to be a reader and a writer. And I'm like, really? Really? And I was like, yes, you know, because I think now as readers and writers, we're so inclusive and I think publishers are taking much more risks and there's just great, great books out there. There really are. And I think, I you know, storytelling is becoming much more relevant and powerful and, you know, we're not sort of couched any longer in, you know, what we feel we can and can't say. And it's, it's just very inspiring and, and, and freeing. I agree 100%. Um, when we started this podcast, I had a couple friends and family members who were kind of like, oh, people still read? And I'm like, <laughs> yes, they do. Like, they still read and they still write. And they're writing beautiful, wonderful, complex books with beautiful, wonderful, complex characters. And so, you know, that's the whole reason why we're even doing this in the first place. And it's interesting that you mention Irish authors in particular because it was actually a James Joyce class where I first got interested in female writers because I was like, where are the women? Yes. Like, surely there are women doing this. So it's, it is so encouraging to hear that, you know, people like you and these other women that you've mentioned who are writing these books that can definitely stand up to all of these books by men that they've been writing for hundreds of years. So we're thrilled. Right, right. No, absolutely, yes. And where are the women and where are their stories and where are their lived yes. experiences and their truths? And, yeah, it's. I, I think it's an incredibly exciting time, and, and, I, and I honestly believe it's just going to get better and better because these voices and these stories are being embraced. And, um, you know, things like the podcast, whatever else, like people do need help, I think, finding the work, accessing the yes. work, and then I think 
understanding its power. Like, you know, I I hear that all the time now. Well, you know, in these times, you know, what relevance is fiction? You know, we're so caught up in the realness of what's happening. And fiction can be extraordinarily powerful. And it can show us things, help us understand things. And, And the idea of, like, safety, I think, again, going back to, you know, my early love of reading and, and with Emily Bronte, like, whoa, maybe I could do this too. It's I could go into these worlds, I could learn from them, I could feel enriched by them, and I came out safely. And and I think that's what so many books can do now in this time when there is this omnipresent sense of, of menace and danger. And you can go into these fictional worlds, you can, you know, take the best from them um, and come out safely. And I think that's something to be championed and, and has great value. Well, we agree with you 100%. And before we let you go, you have mentioned your new book that you're working on a little bit. You mentioned it's a historical fiction novel. Was there anything else you kind of wanted to share with our listeners before we wrap this up? Oh, thank you. No, I think I'm still at that point where I'm just, I, I'm working away on it. I feel like I'm I'm working a pretty final draft at the moment. But yeah, other than saying it's historical fiction, it's set in 1935, um, New York City. It's a young female Irish protagonist. And yeah, unlike my first novel, I'm, fun is maybe the wrong word, but it's really, really enjoying writing it. I'm loving the characters and the world I've created here. And Hopefully, a publisher will soon feel the same way. We'll see. But, um, yeah, it's a different experience that I think every book is. We will eagerly be looking for that to come out. And we just want to say... Thank you so much. Of course. And we will be looking for it. And we want to thank you so much for coming and talking to us. And so for our listeners, if you want to find more work by Ethel Rowan, you can go to her website, which is ethelrowan.com, or you can also find her on Twitter at Ethel Rowan, and we will have links to her pages on our website. And please go out and get a copy of The Weight of Him. It is out now by St. Martin's Press. You will not be disappointed. It is absolutely one of our favorite books this year, and we are recommending it to everyone we know. So thank you all so much for listening to the Reading Women podcast. Kendra and I are eternally grateful for your support and for your reviews and for getting books from our bookstore. Every little bit helps, and our goal is to help you find books by or about women, and it seems like we're being successful and we're really thrilled. So, as always, you can find me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter and Instagram at Autumn Privet, and you can find Kendra at KD Winchester. And don't forget to rate us and review us in iTunes. And thank you all so much for listening and for sharing your post with us. We are always grateful for your support. Thank you. Storybound is a podcast where acclaimed writers read their essays and stories, which are then scored by unique and award-winning composers with each episode hosted by myself, Jude Brewer. With Storybound, you'll find a whole array of genres and musical styles, some painful yet sweet or hilarious yet tragic, all brought to you by the Podglomerate and Lit Hub Radio. Hi, I'm So Pandep. Hi, I'm Megan Angelo. This is Tommy Orange. This is Amanda Stern. This is Phil Cly. Hello, this is Stephanie Dandler. My name is Chloe Caldwell, and you're listening to Storybound. Storybound. This is Storybound. 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 This is the Storybound Podcast. Season 2 will be arriving on July 14th, with new episodes every Tuesday, featuring writers like Stephanie Dandler, Garth Greenwell, Tommy Orange, Chloe Caldwell, and more. 
Make sure to subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend, because the next best thing to hearing a great story is having someone to share it with.